Welcome back, everybody, to another episode of Blades for Days, where we're going to be talking about swords and sword fighting and concussions. I'm your host, Jordan. Joining me today is my good friend, Nick Thomas of the Academy of Historical Fencing. Hey, bud. Hey, Dan. Yeah. All good, man. Yourself? Yeah, yeah, marvellous. Yeah, I was, um, uh, sorry it took me so long to add you on to the call i was looking at the faceless fencer partisan spear yeah yeah that looked quite interesting see the halberd um actually that's not faceless it was another company similar somebody was doing a halberd yeah um i've really been getting into pole arms recently uh just because during lockdown I, I got one sorted and um just started playing around with them and i put a load of stuff up on instagram with me like smashing melons with them and they're great fun. And I'm like, this is probably the most I'll ever get to do with it. But, you know, it's all good. Um, what have you been up to? Because you're like me, you're back in lockdown. and uh, Yeah, just kind of struggling on, trying to do what I can. Um, I'm uh, back at Bristol training, but, um, but obviously Newport's still shut down. Uh, so nothing we can do with that, unfortunately. Just wait, wait it out and see what we can do. Yeah, yeah, it's a pain in the ass. It was the same for me with Philly for some reason. Um, they they almost like immediately went back into lockdown. Um, they were like, "Yeah, we're out," and then like two weeks later, it was like, "No, we can't be trusted." And uh, yeah, back into lockdown they went. So <laughs> yeah, um, but I mean, you uh, like you're a writer, aren't you? So kind of being locked up and writing and stuff—that's kind of your main your main jam, anyway. Yeah, yeah, there's, there's a fair bit we can do. I mean, it's obviously as a business, we can't get together, which does limit us in the things that we can do. So it's a bit challenging in that regard, but um, we make do. So you're working on the sequel to Craven's War? The, well, I'm actually, yeah, the second one's done. I'm on the third one. All oh, right. Okay, cool. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. Was it because the first one came out and then it came out on Kindle? And then is the second one out now then? Uh, it comes out on uh, Saturday. Right, cool, and, okay. And so yeah, the first one came out on, on Kindle and paperback, and actually the paperback was early in the end. Uh, it came out about a week before the uh, Kindle. But um, this one, yeah, Kindle is on Saturday and the paperback will be sort of any day now, probably tomorrow or the day after. All right, awesome. Because um, I was talking to uh, Emmett, um, Emmett Byrne, a friend of mine, and we were talking about how HEMA, like how that kind of informs the way that you watch films, you know, and uh, sword fights and how you read about sword fights and things like that. Um, have you found that, it, you know, when you're writing about fight scenes, that HEMA's really helped with that? Yeah, it definitely, definitely helped because you can tap into some very, very specific techniques. You know, if you look at um, say most fight choreography and sort of film in the last few decades, even since the 1940s sort of or even before that, it was so heavily influenced by things like sports saber and stuff like that, which has its lineage and the saber stuff that we're doing. So you're going to find plenty of similarities um, with a lot of sort of saber fights throughout the last few decades because it's kind of relatively well understood under like some of the earlier weapons, I would say. Um, but even so, there's still tons you can draw on from the manuals. And I do make it my mission to um, kind of teach the reader as I go along. So, you know, have a campfire scene where, you know, one person is teaching another certain techniques straight out of the manual 
and it's, it's you know, teaching the audience so that they can understand the language that's going along with it and also you know learn stuff along the way yeah so yeah that's quite uh, fun. i love that <laughs> it's like um like sneaky humor yeah yeah exactly it's, <laughs> it's unsettled and not really subliminal it's very unsettled but yes. yeah no that's nice that's really good um Cool. I, I need to pick up the first copy. I've got kind of a backlog of stuff to read, but now that I'm back in uh, lockdown, I, I, you know, I think I'll, uh, I'll probably do that. When's it set? Is it? Yeah, well, it's all through the Peninsula campaign in the Napoleonic sort of period. So it starts in uh, May of 1809. So um, it's kind of the first sort of pushback with the, with the British and uh, Portuguese against uh, the French forces in Portugal. Mm. But, it, you know, it should be covering the whole of the Napoleonic period as I go. Yeah, because mm. that's um, that's kind of your wheelhouse, isn't it? Because you guys at the AHF study pretty much, you know, fencing from every period. But, yeah, well, we, do, a... we don't do so much of the sort of really early stuff. We did years ago, but we, we now work from sort of late 16th century onwards. Or maybe there's a little bit earlier on, but certainly in 16th century onwards, we don't do anything before that. So it's sort of renaissance up to Napoleonic. Whereas before we used to go a little bit earlier and a little bit later because we did some Victorian stuff and we went back and you know did some Lignetsa sword and buckler and stuff like that. Where um, whereas now it's very much you know yeah sort of Bolognese and Maya stuff in the Renaissance ranging up to Napoleonic and then we cut off. Yeah. So we've, um, we've <laughs> a bit more, but yeah, well, Napoleonic is one of my big big sort of subjects. It wasn't where I started with Hema, but it's just, um, but it's. Um, but it's where I ended up, particularly with the collecting, because I collect so many of the antiques and I got heavily involved with um, sourcing some of the manuals that were maybe not very well known about or certain editions weren't very, you know, uh, weren't very available. So um, I spend my time digging out old manuals and transcribing, restoring, making them publicly available. So it's a kind of a combination of things. But ultimately, yes, I've ended up with a massive passion for the Napoleonic period. Uh, and that's rubbed off on Hema, or, or maybe he was rubbed off on my writing, or well, maybe both. But even yeah. when I was writing science fiction, I was still, you know, throwing in swords and spears, <laughs> even though it was sort of 500 years into the future. They were still yeah. fighting with, you know, <laughs> spears, swords and shields, because why not? Yeah, the spear's dope, though, isn't it? It's, it's never going away. Um, but one of the things that I... I love is that you were able to identify a sword that I had like the, the the name, the manufacturer and all that sort of stuff from a description I gave you. I was like, oh yeah, you know, I've come into possession of this sword and I described it a little bit and you just said, oh yeah, it's this. And I was like, what? I can't even do that. Like, I forget my own birthday half the time. You know, like <laughs> if somebody said to me like, where were you, you know, where were you last week? I'm like, oh, I don't know. But you somehow have this like catalog memory of swords, you know? Yeah, yeah. Well, when I sort of got into collecting, my, my original collection was kind of a bit more vague and it, it basically became more about the British swords and then more about the British infantry swords and then more about Napoleonic. But initially, I was very obsessively trying to get every, basically every pattern that existed from basically when they started pattern swords in 1788 up to the last one in 1912. And I just wanted every derivative. And I realised at some point, this is just stupid. This is absolutely <laughs> stupid. And I just went, no, let's just let's, let's calm it down, focus into a much tighter region that I'm more interested in and, and yeah work to that so um yeah I've got a kind of a good overview of of all the regulation British swords um yeah. not an expert on the Victorian stuff but I have a solid overview you know for that so yeah I can pick out you know most of the British swords quite easily yeah 
Yeah, no, that's cool, man. <clears throat> I mean, like, I can point at something and go, that's definitely a sabre, but that's about the limit of my knowledge. <laughs> um, yeah, I got a bit obsessive with it, so... Yeah. <laughs> I, um... Because I was talking to Alex uh, Timmerman, we were talking about um, spadroons and you know that period, you know that period and uh, those kind of swords. Because it's kind of outside of my area. Uh, I I love that he told me the story about how you guys met, by the way, and I love that. It's it's a great story, but it had me thinking because um, he said that he got in touch with you guys and he's like, "Hey, I'm a huge fan. Like, can I come? Can I come train with you?" And you were like, "Yeah, man, come live in my house for a week." And I'm like, what? That's insane that you, like, did you vet him beforehand? Uh, no, no, not exactly. He, I spoke to him, you know, you can get a pretty good idea of what somebody's like if you talk to them, you know, even online. So, yeah, um, yeah he seemed to you know his stuff and he was enthusiastic. Yeah. You know, people reach out to us all the time and they're sort of, yeah, can we come over and train with you and this and that? And, you know, about one in 10 actually does it. Most of them, you know, it's, maybe they're dreamers and maybe it's just you know it's it's expensive and difficult to travel around the world to go and, you know do some do some swordsmanship but um but yeah occasionally somebody takes us up on us and just comes and trains so if they're that enthusiastic and they can make it over then yeah i'll uh, show them some castles and hit them with swords you know yeah <laughs> no, that's ace. I, I love that story like you know because i love alex i think he's ace he's a really fun yeah. guy Right, but there's like there's no way I'd let some weirdo off the internet come, you know, come to stay in my house. Yeah, I suppose it was a little bit strange. Normally, when it's happening, <laughs> we actually have some contact with, you know, we met at an event like uh, at Vienna or something like that. So yeah, that was a bit more unusual. But um, yeah, he was he was an enthusiastic uh, guy. So yeah. why not? No, he's ace. Um, I you know I think uh, I think he's a great guy and. Um, what he's struggling with at the moment, like it, with COVID out in America at the moment. And uh, I was talking to a friend of mine. Uh, she's out in California and the whole place is on fire. It's still on fire. I was like, oh, you know, I haven't heard about it on the news for a while. So they probably got that under wraps. No, it's still going. And you're like, Jesus, you know, so yeah. the fact that he's running a HEMA school out in this kind of like Mad Max kind of... It looks uh, like it's heading that way, yeah. It does look like one of the storms from Fury Road, you know? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> um, so I'm like, yeah, more power to you, man. Um, maybe come back to Britain for a bit. <laughs> yeah, I would advise that. Yeah, yeah. So um, you say that, you know, you kind of moved, uh, you started doing stuff a little bit earlier, you were doing things a little bit later, because I know that you guys... Did you start with, I mean, you started with reenactment because you guys were some of the first humorists in Britain, I guess. Um, it's sort of vaguely because, you know, the term humor didn't even exist um, in the 90s. And we weren't, we weren't even initially working for manuals. So, um, you know, it's it kind of developed over time. Is that, yeah, when we started, we were reenactors doing uh, mostly English Civil War stuff. Um, and we were in, uh, well, actually, the way our group got together is we started a group that's called the Chepstow Garrison, uh, which was based out of Chepstow Castle. And we were a Civil War reenactment group because that got besieged in the Civil War and, you know, cannons blitzed through it. But um, yeah, we were doing that reenactment. But we were also in bigger groups like um, ECWS and Sealed Knot. And, um, but our local group, the Chepstow Garrison, we started training in ledge centers um, around Chepstow. And it suddenly, it was no longer about wearing the kits and putting on any kind of public display. It was, let's fight competitively. Um, and initially it's, 
it's basic because you know it started off with gardening gloves and and reenactment swords so you know it's yeah you know but we had no particularly significant injuries because you you fight to the contact levels of the kit you've got you know so um that's how we started and in the end we developed more and more and we got fencing masks and gambesons and then fencing jackets and then swords that were a bit better suited to what we were doing so um it kind of evolved over time um and when you could say we were kind of HEMA as you know it today, I suppose would be the mid 2000s, because that's when we were in, you know, what you'd recognize as HEMA gear and working, you know, straight from manuals. So, uh, whereas before it was kind of drawing all, all of our experience, because as soon as we were doing, I was a Taekwondo fighter, first of all, for six years. Um, Mike was doing Kendo. The other two guys that run it with, with us were doing um, Kenjitsu and um, so they were both sport fencers. So we had them to draw on. So that was really good because you know sport fencing does have quite a pedigree obviously so that was a that was really helpful as well yeah yeah that's that's how we sort of formed it and it molded over time and we, you know we found our manuals like everyone else did and started working from them yeah i love that um <clears throat> i love that that happened and that you've got a couple of groups that kind of evolved like that and then they're all sort of looking at each other and going oh, are we hema or like are we all you know <laughs> are we all hema now um but yeah, that actually, so I didn't know that Mike did Kendo. Uh, that actually explains quite a bit about the way he fights because he's like very much down that center line coming at you kind of thing. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. So yeah, because um, you and Mike fight very differently. I like fighting both of you, uh, but you fight very differently because Mike is kind of quite unidirectional, whereas you're very circular. You're like You're sort of circular, you come in, you come out, you're moving left, you're moving right. Mike's moving forward. <laughs> I think that's probably um, a result of how we um, trained against each other for all the years. Just bear in mind, when I started using swords against Mike, I was probably 11 um, <laughs> and 10 years older than I am. So he was double the size I was. Yeah. So, you know, he's always been a more aggressive fighter and I've always had to be more on the defense. So, um, so yeah, you will find he's the one always going forward and I'm, I prefer to maintain distance and fight more defensively. So, yeah, I think that's a result of uh, training that way for so long. Yeah, yeah, that's cool though. It's especially cool, you know, when we um, when we do like unit combat stuff, when you're running the AHF uh, sparring days, and you guys are fighting side by side. That's quite cool um, seeing that because you both, again, like I said, you both have this um, different way of fighting, and when you're fighting side by side, it's quite complementary. Yeah. Um, so yeah, that's that's uh, that's great. Um, it's absolutely sucked that we haven't had any of those this year, but, you know, for obvious reasons, but um, I really like the AHF sparring events. Yeah, they've been going really well. We've been doing those for about maybe six years, I think, something like that. And um, yeah, we're <coughs> just due to do one as, you know, the lockdowns, the COVID lockdowns struck. We were about a week away, weren't we, from, uh, from having yeah. them. So uh, we almost got one in this year, and but, but, but no. Yeah, but yeah, they're 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 a, they're a real blast. Yeah, but there are some other clubs that run some similar things, like the Birmingham groups. They run very much the similar kind of things. Uh, maybe not the the melee combat, but certainly just you know open to all groups turn up and fight each other. Um, and they do the same in Southampton, uh, the group down there. So there are a few other clubs doing similar things, which are really fun. And I do appreciate just a nice relaxed barring days. Yeah, yeah, that's it. Um, and uh, I've met some really top-notch fighters there as well had some absolute wonderful ass kickings you know <laughs> um, 
And uh, that's the thing, like when you walk away and, you know, your right arm's dead and your left leg doesn't work properly, you're like, yeah, you know, I got, a, <laughs> I got an absolute thrashing there. That was the best. Because um, uh, one of the things that you were going to do, I thought, you know, it was, seems like forever ago now, but um, uh, you were going to do like a boarding action melee uh, this time around, wasn't it? Well, yeah, because we did that um, at the, the clubs, especially the Bristol Club, which is obviously far larger. And we were doing sort of 25, 30 man melees um, where we mapped out the ships. We basically used mats and curtains and all kinds of things because we got the curtain dividers and we basically created two ships side by side uh, that we could fight over. And that worked really well. And we were going to do the same thing at Chepstow, um, which would have been even larger again. And uh, the one we really planned for was the 4th of July this year, because it would have been, you know, the Independence Day uh, fights. So we were going to do uh, a kind of War of 1812, um, Americans versus British. I got had the flags ready for it and everything, because we were doing it with flags as well. So it was like a capture the flag style scenario, but over ships. And oh, then we were going to awesome. do versus Americans. But uh, yeah, unfortunately, we, we couldn't do that this year, but we will surely do it next year. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You need to get Alex across for that one. Uh, yeah, I hoped he would have been. Um, I think yeah. it would have been a lot of fun. Uh, although <laughs> the, the, those boarding actions, once we added in bayonets and especially the boarding pikes, it just got savage. Yeah. You know, eight foot boarding pikes <laughs> when you've got a melee over mixed terrain, it's just crazy. Um, yeah. The boarding pikes are, are seriously OP, but, you know, that's why they use them. So, yeah. Um, you, uh, you saw that. Um, that nerf gun design thing i sent you the flintlock right yeah 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 i need to yeah, get those in as well yeah i would like to do something like that i mean even the standard nerf guns is that usually after a fencing event we have a bit of a party back here and we have done some nerf dueling yes and, you know, yeah so that's actually really quite funny and you know somebody always gets shot in the face a few times but you know it's a nerf dart so it's all good fun <laughs> yeah <laughs> i um so the one time uh i've ever been invited you know ben don't you my friend ben yeah, one of my yeah, students. yeah. yeah. um he, he denies that we're friends but you know he loves me <laughs> um so uh the one time i've been like invited to his house for was uh to a birthday uh to his birthday party and um me and kian one of my other students and friends um we found the nerf guns and <laughs> um like i think we, we were shooting at each other couldn't hit each other worth a damn Right, because we're both like ducking and weaving and stuff. I think Kian shot um, Ben's girlfriend in the eye, and I like <laughs> shot his mum in the neck. So, oh, no. like, you know, uh, I think he's just using COVID as an excuse to not have us over now. You know, he's <laughs> just like, ah, oh, well, you know, I couldn't have a birthday party because uh, lockdown. But yeah, I don't know the real reason. So. <laughs> Our usual thing at these parties is to dig out foam sabers and start hitting each other with them because, uh, you know, after a few beers, it's not exactly sensible to get any uh, swords out, but those foam uh, go now sabers you can have some real fun with. Yeah. But, um, so, yeah, we have had a few sort of uh, silly fights in the garden with those. <laughs> yeah. But the thing is, I've been there when it's like turned into grappling and you've got like gravel on the floor. So you just got people grappling and loads of people standing over them like, you know, with beers going, yeah, get him, get him. <laughs> oh, yeah, I've got a nice decking out there now. So it's, you know, it's hard, but it's, it's, it's you know, it's better than gravel. 
Yeah, man. No, they're race. They're good fun. Um, like the the party afterwards, where everybody can just sort of like you know chill after the AHF sparring stuff and uh, and talk about anything. Generally, we talk about anything but HEMA. Um, you know. Yeah, that's usually the way it goes. Yeah, <laughs> they were all hemed out by that point. Um, but because uh, you've got like a like a really nice, um, it's like a like a training uh, rifle, like a push. I don't know what you call it. Um, yeah, they they, they called them. Um, uh, what was the exact term? Because I think it was a, a training musket or something like that. So even though the even though obviously muskets were long gone, because it's from World War One that one. It's a plunger type of uh, bayonet trainer, but um, I think it was called the bayonet training musket. I think it was the official term for it. And yeah, my one is from 1916, and it's uh, the plunger type. They did also do ones with the flexible, fle uh, yeah, flexible blade a bit earlier on. But yeah, the plunger type. It, the downside to it is it's full weight. It's the full weight of a early Enfield rifle with a bayonet, so it's you know five five and a half kilos. So you know, on the thrust, it's really safe. It has that, you know, really great plunger. It's as safe as, you know, using a sport fencing weapon, pretty much. It's quite light hitting. But if you strike with any kind of, you know, cutting action or all of the butt, especially, it's five and a half kilos of solid wood and steel, you know? So <laughs> uh, it's it's safe up to a point, which is why we don't really do anything with it. Plus it's an antique, but- um, Yeah, yeah, yeah. Cool. Do drills and stuff with it and have a bit of fun with it. But yeah, you, you've yeah. got to be very careful with that one. Yeah, you know, the bayonet trainers that, black fence are half the weight of that. Yeah, yeah, they're ace. Because when uh, Melissa and I uh, did the boarding action when we came to your Newport branch, um, and it was because it was like five aside, um, it was like we were fighting over a dinghy, but you know yeah. it was still still great fun. Um, and I I've only read a lit well I read it uh a while back because i've got a copy uh of your translated uh pringle green's very long title the art of you know uh, uh what's it called it's it's um is it instructions on the um well it's been a while now um yeah. i think it's instructions for a ship for a ship's crew in the attack and defense or something like that it's 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 long it's it's yeah, it's, it's a long, long title yeah um, yeah, so I read some of that. So I know that you break it down into smaller units, so that could be a small unit action. But um, what, uh, yeah, Melissa and I had great fun with it because either she or I had the the, the rifle or the musket, and um, uh, the other would have the pike. So I would use um, the musket to pin, and she'd use the pike to, you know, put in the thrust. Yeah, um, yeah, and that was great fun because it was just pin thrust, pin thrust, and you could just do that all day, uh, and hold, you know, hold a gangplank. Um, yeah, that was awesome, good fun. Yeah, getting those fun bayonet trainers actually was quite eye-opening because over the years we've only ever used the uh, Japanese, isn't there? Uh, Duke Kendo, is it? They're called. It's the, it's the Japanese bayonet fighting art, and they use basically a hardwood musket rifle-shaped object with just a rubber stopper on the end, so it's just straight. You know, it has the shape of the stock, but as far as the muzzle goes, there's no replication of a, a bayonet. It's just straight. And um, we use those for years. And then suddenly we've got these black fences that actually have the offset bayonet, which gives what's called the elbow of the bayonet. And it's suddenly realized that there's loads of techniques, both for and against it, that work really well. Because, yeah, as you say, you can use that angle to trap, but also you can use, you can use it against the opponent as well. 
and you can pull and lever in different ways because it has that elbow of the bayonet and it was just really really eye-opening as to uh, how it affected the fight yeah oh it was cool i um it, it was great fun because you got those just before fight camp skirmish i think wasn't it yeah that sounds about right yeah yeah um how many have you got is it i know that you've I've got, got i've only got two of the black fences um of those bayonet trainers and then i've got two of the uh the duke can do uh trainers that i've added night shot blades to that kind of replicates the same thing Hmm. So, um, so yeah, I've got four bayonet trainers. I, I might get one because when I do come back and we do the AHF sparring thing, I, like I want to take that in. Well, yeah, well, one of the ideas I had for the, uh, well, we had, Mike and I were talking about this for the uh, sparring events, because we can do that naval boarding thing, but the other plan was to section off areas of the sparring area where you could have free fencing and whatever people normally do, and then have small areas that are dedicated to a one specific thing. So one, for example, would be a six person setup where it would be um, two soldiers with bayonets versus, uh, plus an officer with a, a sword on each side. So yeah, you've got two bayonets and a sword on each side. It's basically small unit combat. And then the same thing for, say, a sword and shield or spear and shield combination. So it basically it'd be small melee areas with the weapons already there ready to go. And just any, any small groups can just jump in and do that scenario. Yeah, that's a good idea. Like three on three um, sort of fights kind of thing. I think it'd be a fun way to do small melee actions and people could cycle between them and just have a bit of fun with it. Yeah, no, that's great. And and then you learn, you know, when you sort of uh, break it down and you make it smaller, you learn how to work with that sort of three man team. And then you go, yeah, okay, exactly. we're ready. And then you go into the big melee, you know, <laughs> the three of you are working together and uh, kicking a bit of ass. I think that's great. That would be good fun. Um, yeah. So yeah, that'll have to be next year, I guess. Um, I think this year has kind of been for a lot of people the probably the you know worst HEMA their worst HEMA moments, you know, because uh, there's been a lot of sort of setup to do things, and then it's just sort of fallen through. Oh yeah, it is absolutely infuriating and it's very annoying because I just really started getting back to events. Um, I, I took a few years off from doing events, uh, a few reasons, uh, some of them health related and uh, sort of 28, end of 2018 I started going back to stuff. 2019 I had a really busy year just doing tons and tons of stuff and then 2020 I had a plan to do all the same again plus some other stuff like I was going over to America for uh, an event and Alex was running, I was going to go to one in Sweden um, I was going to go back to Vienna for the Dren event that was all booked in and I was teaching at these events as well. So it was like 2019 was a big year for me going back to all these events. That was fantastic. 2020 was going to be twice that level again. And no, it's nothing whatsoever because all the events were just about to kick off when everything, you know, went to crap. So yeah, it, it is, it is appalling, but, um, make the most of it. I mean, one of the things I have done in this time is make my Hema at home series and I've been trying to make a series on uh, sort of British military swordsmanship instructional videos for years. And I've, I always end up doing sort of one or two here and there and, and then, then never again. Whereas at this time of the lockdown is I just shot 20 videos in a row and, uh, and that's covered sort of half of the row of manuals. So that's been useful. And I get a lot of messages about that, that people uh, are really enjoying that and, you know, enabled to actually, you know, learn the system from home. So that's been a, a benefit. Yeah. Yeah, no, that's good. I've, I've actually been doing that myself because um, I've come into possession of some sabers. So I've gone out the back and done that. Um, and yeah, it's been good for me because I know nothing, like I said, I know nothing about um, 
Roweth or pretty much any any of that you know any of that side of stuff anything that I know about fencing with a saber I've pretty much learned from you or Mike um so yeah um so you got because you get a lot of messages um because of your YouTube channel um and you get a lot of you get a lot of uh, the chairborn division getting involved, don't you? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, most people on YouTube are great and they're just, you know, enthusiastic, but there's always a, a small proportion of, you know, yeah, the keyboard warriors. Um, yeah. Uh, and they've always got something to say. And it's, it, fortunately, it's usually very funny. So they do provide some entertainment. So I, I don't always mind it so much. Yeah. No, I think it's good fun for the most part. Um, like I've got, like I've had some quite angry, angry people. Yeah, even I'll give you two examples from today, which are modest compared to what you would sometimes see. The one was looking at one of our drawing videos, the sword drawing, you know, we do like tactical drawing scenarios, like 21 foot rule stuff. And it's just common is that's not how you draw a saber or a sword. <laughs> It's like, according to who? What, there's some <laughs> universal method for drawing swords throughout human history? <laughs> Are you kidding me? <laughs> and then, so that was the one, um, uh, which was, yeah, that was hugely interesting. And the other one was on um, a Montante, no, no, uh, sorry, um, it was a rapier versus uh, longsword video, I think it was. And it was like, oh, this is why you should take a Montante to even up the odds. As if you could just like use the wheel on your mouse to change from a longsword to a you know a montante. <laughs> yeah, you turn up at the fight and you're like, oh, hang on, let me just go home and get a bigger weapon. Yeah, and people just understand that you know when you pitch one weapon against another, you know it is like exhibition. It's that weapon against that weapon. It's not yeah. I'll run home and get another weapon because that's what I know I'm going to fight. You know. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh, I do love that. Yeah, because um, you've you had that you had that one that was like super angry, um, and I was laughing for about ten minutes because this 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 guy, um, and he's losing his shit. He's like the katana, you know, the, you know, he's having a go at you about the rapier, and he's just like the katana's way better than the rapier. How dare you even suggest? I mean, you know. Um, <laughs> He's clearly taking it very personal. Yeah. Uh, I just imagine these people like going dum dum dum. They're drinking their coffee. You know, they switch on uh, they switch on YouTube and they go, oh okay, yeah. Uh, they have a look at this video and then they're just spitting their coffee everywhere and just go, what? He said what? You know, I don't. I've never commented on anybody's video, even if I disagree with it, like you know, completely. Even if it's uh, some like. I don't know, some LARPer shooting off about something he doesn't know about. I'm not going to comment. I'm going to go like, okay, whatever. He doesn't know what he's talking about. But some people, they it's their mission, isn't it? Like, they, they take it upon themselves. To... Yeah, and, and they usually know so little. Um, yeah. And that's the problem. Is if it actually came from a position of, of knowledge and experience, it wouldn't be so bad. But usually it's just, you're dissing my weapon, and I'm going to get angry over it. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. It's, it's, it's kind of hilarious that people assume that there's somehow some pinnacle of weapon is that one sword is the ultimate sword in any period and any type. You know, it's kind of hilarious. You know, every, every feature on a sword compromises it in some way. There is no perfect, no ideal. But, you know, yeah. the, the rapier versus katana, people always, you know, they'll often comment before watching the video and they're just like, how can you compare these weapons? They're completely different. And, you know, 
whatever. It's like you, they don't have watched the video and looked and understood that it's 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 a fight between those two swords. It's not can one cut better than the other. Yeah. If they actually watched the video, they would know that. And obviously, I wouldn't be doing that comparison. It's like you compare those two weapons because they fulfilled basically the same function historically. Is that rapier and katana were for the most part a sidearm in war and a self-defense weapon in civilian life. So they, they, they do this, they're there for the same job, even though that they do it in a different way. And that's why it's interesting. Yeah. Um, also, it's fun. It. Yeah, it's just like, the other thing is it's fun. It's there for a bit of fun. It's like whenever you do the um, the mixed weapon stuff, you know, when you, you um, like we've done it um, at Fight Camp Skirmish, we did it at uh, like the AHF has done it. Like you just pick up a random weapon and pick up, you know, pick some other rando and go, let's let's have at it and see what happens, you know? I, I love that. And I think if people don't train these mixed weapons, they're, they're massively at a disadvantage. You know, if you only match your weapons up, you're basically saying this is a sportive environment only. And and that's fine if that's what you want to do. But, you know, if you look at so many manuals historically, that they are about training for different weapons, you know? And if, if you look at Maya, for example, the, the weapon selection in it is massive. And even if I take <laughs> something I'm more familiar with, Roas, you know, Roas, Okay, it's about broadsword, saber, and spadrum. That's already three weapons. But if you dig into it, he goes into walking stick. He goes into how you fight muskets, how you fight uh, the spontoon, how you fight the small sword, and and you know, that's really common through manuals. You know, Hema manuals is it's so common to see this mixed weapon matchups, because ultimately, you go into an 18th century battlefield with a sword, you're more likely to fight against a musket than another sword. Yeah. So, you know, musket and bayonet. So, you know, the, the mixed weapon scenarios are really, really common. And the same with the spear versus the sword and stuff like that. They're going to go against each other so often. So I think people need to do these mixed weapon matchups. And um, one of the ways we forced it one time, and I want to do this again, is we did um, a Lucky Dip sort of tournament. It was a casual, fun tournament at the sparring events, at the Chepstow ones. And it was Lucky Dip. So what we did is we got a bag of coins, and there were eight different weapons. And each coin had that weapon, you know, basically taped to basically printed piece of paper taped onto the coin and they were all chucked in the bag and there was only one of each weapon type so you could never get a matched fight and we had basically dagger spear sword and shield sword and buckler long sword um and um sickle uh, so we had basically a, a mix in there and there were a couple of others and uh and yeah so it was completely lucky dip what you got so two people would just volunteer to fight and they draw a coin each and that's what they get yeah i think i saw the youtube Thing of that because you put it up on youtube yeah right? yeah yeah, yeah. It's, it's hugely entertaining and, oh, yeah. and, and obviously eye-opening for a lot of people because a lot of people do not necessarily intentionally but a lot of people do shy away from the mixed weapon fights it's just it's, it's just automatic to go and fight the same weapon mm. uh, whereas that forced the issue and it was really fun yeah yeah i mean it, yeah it's good it takes you out of your comfort zone but you you know there's also things like with the sickle i suppose you know it's like well sort of you know the length ish because it's quite a short sickle isn't it it's, uh, it's yeah it's like the length a, of a basically nice dagger yeah um but it's you know obviously curved but then you know you're thinking about how you can use it to displace the same way you would a dagger and then close um so yeah um i think that's i think stuff like that is cool and again you know, if you if you are, you're just there, you're on a farm, you're doing your thing, somebody turns up with a spear and you're like, well, you know, this is what I've got. Um, you're not going to be able to go, no, put that down. I've got a spear at home. Let's make it fair. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. I mean, there are so many times historically you read uh, original accounts where people just had to make do with what they've got. 
So, you know, for example, people ask, were four axes used on ships as weapons? Well, for the British, generally not. And yet there are loads of examples where they were used through necessity. One of the ways, for example, was when, when slaves sort of broke free, for example, not just with the British, actually, is they would usually find axes and then use them as weapons. Um, and so often it's improvised weapon usage like that. Uh, although my favorite one that I read today was actually at the Battle of Talavera, which is, you know, the kind of stuff I'm writing about right now, where um, uh, an Irish um, infantryman, he'd actually got a broken arm, so he couldn't use his musket, and he saw a Frenchman climb a tree to take a pot shot at, a, at an officer, and he just drew his bayonet out and threw the bayonet, and it went straight into the Frenchman's throat and killed him instantly. Nice. So there you go, a thrown bayonet, a thrown socket bayonet into a, a, a rifleman in a tree, so uh, or shot yeah. in a tree. That's my favourite recent one which I read about this morning. So uh, who knew there was a method for uh, you know taking down sneaky Frenchmen in trees? Yes, that's <laughs> awesome. Is that like, um, is that? something that he reported himself or did somebody else see it because if it was something that he wrote about himself there's almost yeah. like that kind of like black adder thing of oh yeah i killed that one yeah, no no he, he saw it happen and he wrote it in his journal um oh yeah yeah so he saw it happen so yeah there That's are some ace. yeah i love things like that i was actually reading um we've got a book um and it's called hell hell riders uh, and it's about the charge of the Light Brigade, because one of my ancestors, William Mock, was actually in the charge, right? Oh, so, yeah, um, done the like you know done the family tree thing. Um, found out he was there, and um, yeah, reading about one of these accounts, there's this one guy, and he just talks about his uh, his horse is shot out from underneath him, um, so he collapses to the floor. One uh, bullet lodges itself in his shoulder. Another one ricochets off his skull um he's th uh, there's a, a guy um above him uh, a cossack i think with a lance who just keeps stabbing him and he's like yeah he stabbed me in the you know he stabbed me in the chest three times then in the back then as i was trying to draw my saber he stabbed me through the hand uh and he probably would have killed me if I hadn't thrown dust in his eyes, or you know, I hadn't thrown sand in his eyes, and I'm like, you, like the fact that you survived that to come home and write about it is insane. Um, so yeah, because uh, we were talking about that, we were talking about um, like the Victoria Cross winners, weren't we? And some of the some of the records yeah. and like what people have done to win to win those well yeah it's, it's bizarre when you read in historical accounts sometimes the most minor of injury just takes somebody out and then other times they just you know you read accounts of people being slashed and hacked and they're still going and going and going uh another one i like was a, a scottish officer who was uh, fighting he fought his way through several i think it was french um and he, he killed about three men and he got attacked by a cavalryman and he got his head cleft open and he was just bleeding everywhere and and he was fighting over a ditch as well uh, against his cavalryman. So basically, he couldn't manage to do anything. He was just getting hacked to pieces. So he jumped the ditch and just thrust his broadsword through the horse. So the horse went down and then just killed the man on the ground. <laughs> so, Jesus, yeah. It's just... Uh, yeah. I, uh, stuff like that, like the what people can survive. Um, and yeah, you know, minor injuries taking people down. Like one of my favourite fights, actually, is in... Um, it's in the duelist and they're fighting and he literally just gets it looks like just a little prick 
you know, with yeah, yeah. the small sword, and he—I I think it's a small sword—and he just he goes down. He's like, I can't continue because um, he's been thrust in the chest. Uh, he's alive, but he's like, uh, you know, uh, maybe lung shot or something. But yeah, he's just like, I can't continue, and it's over like that. Um, but then, yeah, the, 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 I was uh, talking to a friend of mine who um, he's big into the Wars of the Roses. And he was talking about this mercenary captain that they dug up who had died in this battle, but he had um, he, he, basically his skull had been split open in a previous battle. Um, it had healed and then he'd come on to fight in this next battle. And, you know, this um, they dated the scars as being like seven years earlier or something like that. So Yeah, I've seen a skull really... like that when I was in um, Denmark. And it, and basically, you can see where the skull basically repairs itself over, over many, many years. So they can tell essentially what are fresh injuries, you know, or at least when they died from the injuries versus what was healing over time. And I saw one like that where it was, it was some kind of axe or sword hit, like almost exactly in the top of the head and just opened it up and then it almost healed back again before they died yeah. uh, from another injury. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I'd give it up at that point. If somebody split my skull open, I'd go like, nah, gotta be a baker, you know? Yeah. But yeah, the, um, the the small sword going into the chest in uh, the Duelist is an interesting one. So um, I've done a lot of research, or reading at least, um, from various physicians around the 18th and 19th century. And they talk about the effects of injuries, both short-term and long-term. And one of the points they make out is that uh, when a person gets thrust in the chest, so with a sword or a bayonet, I think it's something like three quarters of them just drop instantly. Apparently it's a shock um, um, aspect to getting hit in the chest and it almost immediately puts everyone down for good immediately straight away. Uh, and that's how significant a, a chest shot is. Whereas for example, the abdomen, um, you usually don't even notice, even though it's, fatal almost every time because back then they couldn't really fix abdomen injuries or very, very rarely. Um, because once the intestines get cut, they say usually whatever you see, you can actually heal. There'll always be more cuts underneath it. Obviously intestines being so complex and so long. So it's like, yeah, you can often survive, uh, you know, being thrust through your abdomen and just fight on for a few hours and yet you're gonna die. Yeah. So, um, and that's the difference with, between these injuries. Yeah, because there's, um, there's a thing, isn't there, about like knife attacks is that, you know, um, a lot of people when they first get, you know, when they first get stabbed, because people generally get attacked quite low, it, you know, because the people are holding the knives near their pockets and they're holding them yeah. quite low. And when they put in these sort of like sewing machine strikes or thrusts, yeah. um, you know, people just feel like they're being punched and then they... And then, you know, they might try and defend themselves or they might try and like attack or do whatever. But then when they, it's when they see the blood that they go into shock and they realize yeah, that they've been stabbed. Um, whereas I imagine with the chest, because it's going through that bone and you're seeing it, it's coming right there. It, it's that instant kind of like shit, I've been stabbed as well. Like the psychological effect that, you know, that you're going to have there. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So, yeah. Um, I was fencing with somebody recently, actually. I can't remember who it was. One of my guys. And um, uh, I put in a thrust with a longsword. And um, it was it was quite short. Uh, but it only like, um, only about an inch, sort of an inch worth hit. So it didn't flex a great deal. And I keep telling my guys about this. 
And he went, oh, well, it would have only gone in an inch. And I'm like, okay, like take a knife, right? Put an inch of it into your chest and then report back to me on your findings. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. They just go, nah, this is fine. Like, <laughs> yeah, so, yeah, that's not funny. I was talking to uh, Mike about this because um, we were talking about like injuries that we've received. Um, and, uh, I haven't had that many injuries in, well, I say I haven't had that many injuries in HEMA. I've had like a broken finger and some bruises and that's it. Um, I think I told you about the, the broken finger because that was, uh, that was Jordan Air. Air? Um, yes. Yeah. 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 Uh, and, it, you know, it was um, it, like, it was a complete accident. It wasn't anything. Um, but it was it was my own fault because I put in a, we were fighting Saber, but because I was training my guys in Sword and Buckler, I put in a strike. I hit him uh, in the temple, I think. And as I was withdrawing, my hand went from my hip and I threw it up to cover my face. And yeah, if I hadn't yeah. put my hand up, his sword would have missed me completely. But it hit me in the ring finger and it broke my ring finger. Um, and rather stupidly, rather than taking off my my wedding ring there and then, I just carried on fighting. After like some swearing and some, you know, like vows of vengeance, um, you know, I, like I carried on fighting. And then the next day I woke up and my, like my ring finger had just ballooned and I could not <laughs> get that ring off for love nor money. Um, yeah, people ask all the time, it's like they, they see, uh, see us do Sabre and, you know, it's like the teapot stance with the left, you know, the off hands on the, on the hip. And they're like, why is your hand back there? And it's like, that's exactly why it's <laughs> because yeah. if you put it up it's it's gonna get hit so yeah. uh yeah yeah it is important yeah i was fighting with um one of my friends from cork blade masters uh andrew and it was in the the finals earlier this year in failing agashka and we were fighting and i love the cork blade masters uh because they'll corner each other and they're just kind of giving each other advice but it's really concise it's really um you know, it's it's not like uh, they're just shouting a load of instructions. They'll just say things like patience, patience, you know, measure, patience. And I love that. But Andrew kept, I think it was Andrew I was fighting, but he, like his hand kept drifting up. And um, uh, Martin, who's one of the guys from, uh, like who was cornering him, um, was like, put your hand down, put your hand down. And I was fighting him. And then later, uh, like, I, I think it was like in the fifth exchange or whatever, his hand drifted up and I was like, Andrew, put your hand down. And his hand just like went back down to his head. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah. Um no, it was good fun. Uh I I really like Saber. I've kind of like uh like you know me, I'm probably into the sort of medieval stuff mainly. But yeah, then yeah. uh started doing Saber with you guys. And also um I was saying to Alex that he kind of, uh, he got, uh, you know, he got me into the, the Spadroon a little bit. I haven't fought much with them, um, but I get it now, you know? Yeah, yeah. Um, so, yeah, um, no, I like it. Uh, what's the um, what's the worst injury you've had? Because I think you... I've, I've only it. had two significant injuries. Uh, one is where I was thrown in a Meza fight um and my either my mezza or my opponents i can't remember now was on the floor with a and you know the nagel on the mezza the, the the part of the guard that sticks out over the outside of the hand so the mezza was flat on the floor and the nagel was stuck up this is an aluminium training sword and i landed rib first on the the nagel um so yeah that cracked the rib and um, that wasn't the most comfortable thing in the world 
Although, you know, it could be a lot worse. But um, that's why I tend to prefer D-rings or at least larger guards than just, you know, a, a fairly pointed nagel. Yeah. my personal preference. But um, so that was kind of a freak accident, if you like. And the only other significant one was a, a concussion, uh, which was about um, three, four years ago now. And uh, that's that's one of the reasons I stopped going to a lot of events is because I had to just take time out and it was well the full recovery was about 18 months on that. Uh, it was no offensive for six months uh, and it's just slow going after that. And it was basically it was a heavy saber that was being used with, you know, too much contact that cracked me on a very lucky shot of the temple. So it was just a combination of factors that, you know, contributed yeah. to one another and uh, yeah, that was that sucked. So you know, people joke about concussions; they're not funny. No, and no, no, no. Obviously, any repeated concussions can obviously be significantly bad for you. So yeah, um, yeah that was just a unfortunate events, really. Um, yeah, because I've never just, actually broken anything. Amazingly, I, I say that now, but uh, I've lost fingernails here and there. Um, I think everybody has lost fingernails in Hema. But um, yeah, that's that's the worst. Um, but I don't think I've yeah I've never lost I've never actually broken anything yet by that crack rib. So it's, yeah. it's not been not been too bad. Yeah, I um I was fighting with Kian, and this was we would we were doing like reenactment style stuff. So like you said, gardening you know gardening gloves with like a scrap of leather here and there, yeah. you know. And um, he brought the bottom of his knife down on my thumb as I was coming in. So my thumb was kind of between the grip and the blade, and he just like you know it was a complete accident. He was trying to sort of defend himself um and uh yeah it just came down on my thumbnail and uh yeah it was horrible it was like you know i was just walking in a circle kind of like trying to hold choking back tears you know and uh i was just, like you know cradling my thumb and i was like yeah 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 no it's fine it'll be fine um but then later that day the pressure in my thumb built up so so much where it, the blood was pooling under the thumbnail that we had to go into the kitchen and Melissa had to like drill a hole through my thumbnail to release the blood. Um, and that was agony. Um, that was, yeah. Hot needle is the way to go with that. Yeah, we tried that. Um, I think, in fact, that might've been what we did in the end. Uh, yeah, Cause yeah. we had a Dremel and I was like, nah, this is dumb. <laughs> <laughs> no, no yeah. you get a needle nice and hot, it should just push through. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> like, like, you know, the idea of having crush protection on gloves is still only a relatively new thing on five fingered gloves. You know, mm. uh, and when I say crush protection, I mean side protection, because obviously people put whatever they want on top. I mean, you can get steel gauntlets, you know, medieval gauntlets that are steel, but still usually don't have basically side protection that stops the crushing effect, which is why you can still break fingers through them, which is why yeah. people do mittens, which just makes a logical, uh, is a logical reason. But um, yeah, over the years, we've tried to work out ways and because you get, you know, you get that crushing aspect and I've probably lost three thumbnails, I think, over time. And uh, and yeah, occasionally you have to release the pressure like that and then try and find ways to fix it. One of the ways is to use um, cricket protectors. So if you look at cricket gloves, they have these big, they're like thimbles, but really strong, like a really heavy duty thimble. And you just stick them in the thumb of a glove and suddenly it'll, it's designed to stop you breaking a finger in cricket. So, uh, you know, what, a hundred mile an hour cricket ball, it probably is quite similar to a, you know, a sword and, and that actually does work. Yeah. Well, that's, that's a good idea. Cause I know that I, I think it's Spess or the night shop have those fingertip protectors. Yeah. 
um, but they're always like a little bit too wide for me. So I, I end up not gripping the sword, like gripping the sword with splayed fingers. And you know, I use those now actually, um, but I only use two. I use the thumb and the little finger. Oh yeah. So then you get so it doesn't push them apart because they're the priorities. Because the thumb is what's going to take an absolute beating, and the, the little finger is the most vulnerable. And if you put the little finger one in, it allows it to sit slightly higher on the glove, so it protects the others, but it doesn't okay. with that. So yeah, I, I just use thumb and little finger. Oh, that's finger. a good idea. Yeah. Um, but what you were saying about uh, concussions, I think that is, I think that's really interesting, and it is something we're going to have to come back to in maybe ten years or something like that, and just kind of have a look at the effect of the effects of being hit in the head repeatedly even with uh even with controlled strikes um because you know micro concussions have take effect over time and um i was talking to um my brother ollie and he was talking about the ufc and how it's it's still relatively new and so the lasting effects of just being bludgeoned in the head over and over again because um, what you were saying about the guy with the, the heavy saber um, and, you know, the, there was a lot of contact there and, you know, it was, it was a bad spot that you got hit. Um, like I've come across, I've come across quite a few people that I, I say quite a few people, um, you know, a few, um, not that many, but, you know, a few people who were like, okay, well, I've got two hands on this thing. So I need to, I need to put all of my strength into it like completely um and uh yeah they they're using it more like a baseball bat um than a sword uh so i think that there are definitely dangers in hema from you know the potential for concussions well yeah and there is it's only a small minority but there is a minority in hema that um does insist on basically full contact hitting um which you know it's it's a bit silly because you're going to find a weakness in your protection. You know, you have the best jacket, the best mask, best gloves, you'll still find a weakness somewhere if you're using those kind of contact levels. You know, you can have a fast fight without actually hitting your opponents at full power. Yeah. Um, and if, if people insist on hitting them, hitting each other in the head at full power, well, you're going to get a load of concussions. Mm. Um, yeah, I know. Like, there's... Um... Because you know, even with the best jackets and the best masks and still like you know and and, and things like that, they're still being um, improved all the time because they've you know they've come from sports fencing and yeah you know you can add extra padding and things like that to these uh, masks, but the designs are ultimately still very similar to their progenitors. So, well, yeah, and, and if you look at uh, what concussion is, a concussion is a rattling of the brain. So yeah. you, you can potentially have the basically the strongest mask or helmets um, you could possibly think of. But if it still rattles the brain, you know, you could have a 14 gauge steel helmet and still get that concussion inside it. So yeah. um, in time, I suppose what you need is, is some kind of outer armor, which absorbs impact, which is, you know, what, what, you know one of the reasons people wear the, you know, the mask overlays is that, yes, they do deaden impacts a little bit. Mm. So, um, but yeah, it is a problem to overcome. I mean, yeah. at this stage, the answer is don't hit each other in the head at full force. I mean, yeah. that's, that's a simple answer for now. Yeah. Because um, uh, the the Battle of the Nations stuff, um, I follow like a lot of uh, boot hurts and Battle of the Nations uh, things on um, Instagram. 
And I don't know that much about it. I haven't looked a, a great deal into it. But every now and again, I just see this fight between these guys and they're wading in on each other with these like, you know, steel clubs, essentially. And you've got somebody with the most dented helmet. Like, um, and I'm like, what have you got in there? Like, what, what's inside there that's, you know, keeping your brain from turning into paper mache? You yeah. know? Again, the, as a sport, it's quite new, is that I'm sure they're going to encounter some major problems over the next few years, just like you're talking about with MMA and boxing. Um, I think they will start to encounter some nasty, nasty injuries in the next few years. I mean, they do keep up in the armour. I mean, I, I follow a few accounts on Instagram that make some really nice armour, and I saw one a few days ago that was like, um, it was kind of like, um, you know the helmet where they have the, the mail that goes up to the eyes? There's kind of yeah. mail down here, you've got them in the nose bar, and it's, 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 you know, it's quite a nice helmet design, but what they've done is internally it's got a hidden plate. So actually it's plate inside, but it looks like an earlier helmet. And I thought oh, that was really, really cool. cool. And then I looked at the specs and it was like, the top of the helmet was three millimeters thick. <laughs> what? <laughs> three millimeters? And, uh, and I looked at the weight and this helmet is 6.9 kilos. Jesus. Yeah. I'm, just, I, I'm at a loss, you know? Yeah. Is there, what, is there any neck support or? No. No, no, it's, 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 it's just male down here. I mean, there's, there's some hidden plate, but it, it's not supported to the neck, no, it's just. Ah, oh, superb. So like all of that is on the top of the head. Um, you know, you take one hit, you, you're not, <laughs> not going to be able to like bring your head back up for the weight of it. Yeah, or will it even move if it's going to, you know, when it gets hit, so if there's that much weight. Yeah, that's, just, that's a good exactly point, it. actually. Yeah. Um, I love that. That's awesome. Like, it, it's really... Um, good looking stuff like when i watch you know when i watch this stuff it's always like really entertaining it looks fun and i was saying to um i can't remember who i was talking to uh it might have been roger barry um who's a friend of mine that i spoke to uh, a couple of weeks ago but yeah like now and again i watch battle of the nation stuff and there's a part of my brain that i'm still like 18 years old and i'm like yeah let's do that you know and then there's another part of me that's like no first i can't afford it because i have expensive taste anyway you know like i uh i do humor and the other thing that i like to do is scuba diving neither of which is very uh you know it's very cheap um and uh uh yeah and like reenactment as well although i do like the cheapest form of reenactment which is viking age reenactment so you just like yeah. put on a potato sack and a bin lid on your head and, <laughs> you know um yeah. no, I, had a, I had a fun idea of how we could uh, do something that's a bit like that but has a you know because you know, obviously battle of nations it's like mma meets medieval combat kind of thing and i thought because yeah. I'm, I'm a fan of mma and i watch mma and i watch boxing and i thought how could we do something that's a bit similar because we can't always simulate some of the, the punches and grapples and stuff like that and i thought well those foam sabers we've got, the Go Now ones, why don't we get MMA face masks, the one they use in training, and MMA gloves, and just use that? So we got foam sabers, the MMA masks, MMA gloves, all punches, all grapples, all kicks, and knees, everything is allowed, and you've also got the sword. That would be pretty cool, actually. It would, so it'd be like saber MMA. Uh, yeah. You obviously have to stop on certain impacts because you the sword has to still it can't be you can't treat it like a stick. You need to actually say, well, if a good strike lands, you still have to stop. Yeah. Um, yeah, but, yeah. but if you can get into distance and use whatever you want, then you, you can do. So I think that'd be quite a fun thing to do. Yeah. 
I um I did because I did something like that where um you know Big Sam Sam Aykroyd, um yeah. he and I uh, the first time we got um to use the long swords you know the foam long swords yeah. um we just went hell for leather with them because it was at the AHF um one of the AHF sparring um uh, get-togethers and uh you know we'd both been in kit and kit restricts you obviously and then I took my kit off and I feel oh man yeah I can move again and then I think you came over and went hey check this out and Sam was there as well and we just went at each other and we Rather, rather stupidly, we weren't wearing masks because uh, I got like hit on the side of the head at one point. I'm like, oh, yeah, I felt that actually because right at the tip of these long swords, there's not a lot of flex in them. So it was just yeah, like yeah. walloped me in the side of the head. But we got into this, like we, we got close and I went for a pommel strike um, and he sort of like ended up grappling with me and throwing my sword across the room. Um, and we sort of got into this grapple and I was like trying to get behind him but he's so big and ungainly. He's like one of the only people I can't throw, right? And uh, I'm just there like trying to grab hold of his arms and he reverses the sword to like stab me behind. So like push him away from me. I ran for my long sword. Um, I did like a diving roll and managed to hit him in the arm. Um, (laughs) Like, I think like the room had 30 people in it, but only one person saw it, right? Yeah, I know. So I was like distraught by that. And then, and Sam turned around and said, no, I'm never going to tell anybody it happened. So like nobody. <laughs> um, so, yeah, but no, that would be absolutely, that would be awesome fun. Um, yeah. I think some yeah. of the person fighting like that would be good fun. I mean, like you I know you're a big fan of always carrying a dagger because, you know, it's your ultimate ambition in life is to stab somebody with a dagger in a sword fight. Yeah. I get that and um <laughs> it's like years and years ago when we transitioned for reenactments I often wore a dagger and uh, I think it's possibly even seeing you wearing them made me think well I should do it again uh so you, you've rubbed off on me there you go and uh <laughs> and I, like for the last two years now I've been wearing a dagger during every single training session usually just a cold steel polypropylene one because you know something like I can fall on and not get cracked like a mess in the rib <laughs> and um and uh, and yeah actually has been really useful you know, every now and again, it does come out during a sword fight and, and is useful. Or toss into somebody on, on, when they're on the floor grappling so they can stab their... Uh, yeah, their yeah, thanks for that, buddy. Uh, yeah, I remember that. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, that, you know, carrying secondary weapons is, you know, something historically we know happened plenty often enough. And um, and it's, you know, it's something most people don't do now. So you see people work, like doing a longsword fight and they get close and they go to grapple. It's like... I'm five foot seven. Why would I grapple with most people? I'm going to stab them. You know? <laughs> yeah. There was somebody I actually fought at the, uh, it was in uh, Newport, uh, AHF. And um, I can't remember who it was because they weren't AHF. Um, they'd come to visit or something. I was fighting them. And we got into grapple and I, uh, I gripped hold of the cross guard of their sword. And um, they took hold of the cross guard of mine. So I just let go of my sword, right? And they kind of had this dumbfounded moment where they just went, okay, I got both swords. I did, you know, I don't know what to do here. So they dropped mine and like leveled theirs and I stabbed them in the face with my dagger, right? <laughs> and like I, I sort of backed away from them and they were looking at me and they just went, you know, oh, okay. Didn't realize you had that. And uh, I went, are you okay with that? And they went, well, I guess I'll have to be. And um, <laughs> it's sort of, 
it sort of goes back to what we were talking about with like mixed weapons stuff because yeah that would happen you couldn't go oh well i didn't know you had that so uh that's not fair you know yeah yeah but actually the dagger the thing that i use it for most is if i do end up grappling with somebody and i i put my point in line with their face or something or you know uh, i indicate that i could get a pommel strike so i'm pretty much just holding the pommel in front of their face if they then kind of look at that pommel and rather than go okay you've pommel struck me they then try to grab my pommel and you know and try to wrestle my sword from me i just go okay well i tried to be polite so I take the knife out and i'm just like coming with that <laughs> So yeah, awesome. no, I love that dagger. It's one of my favorite things, you know. <laughs> it's, yeah. Uh, so yeah, with the with the the cold steel stuff um, as well, and what you were saying, we kind of did something similar. Me and um, Ollie, um, who you've met, um, with what you were talking about um, the the sabers, we were wearing kit, but we had. Um, we had the cold steel, they're like the K-bar combat knives. Um, and we had uh, those in one hand and an MMA glove or a boxing glove in the other. And um, we were wearing fencing masks because we didn't have anything else. But we were sort of like fighting with those and throwing strikes as well. So I think like your idea with the foam sabers. Yeah, yeah. As, as, as long as people respect the, the sword cuts that are, that are coming in, as long as they respect that and stop on, on any good sword strikes, then it'll mm -hmm. be fine because um, otherwise it will devolve into a stick fight but um, yeah. yeah as long as people go in with the right attitude I think it'd be um, hilariously funny and it's yeah. the kind of thing you go and do in a park and it would be quite quite good fun yeah yeah I mean you'll have to make sure that um, the, the two people who do you know if they do go in for like grappling and things like that that they know what they're doing oh, um, oh yeah I, I would very selectively choose who's going to do it you know yeah, yeah. Um, I suppose if people are going to do it in the park, you know, you can't stop them, then, you know, more power to you, but that's, that's you, like, you know? yeah, exactly. Uh, yeah. Um, cause I, I think I've like, I've told a few people this story, um, but it, it's kind of a cautionary tale, but at the same time, I suppose this guy did the, th probably the martially correct thing, but not the martial arts you know not the thing that's correct for martial arts it was in um, ireland two years uh last year and this guy was getting really really frustrated um and uh he was he was in the blue corner and he was fighting against somebody and i'd actually asked him i was like hey man you having fun and he was like i've lost every fight right and i was like yeah but are you having fun um and uh, he was like no i'm not no i'm not and i was like okay fair enough you know I went and I sat down on uh, on the bench and I was there with my uh, I was having a drink. I was watching him fight and it was like he was in the blue uh, corner and his opponent was in the red corner. They came out um, and it was like bam bam bam. The exchange would go and then it was like five points red. They back off. They come in again. Bam bam bam. Five points red. And I could see this guy even like through his mask. I could see him getting red faced, really wound up. And so the last exchange, he just comes forward and he just comes forward and he's like throwing um you know throwing these massive basically peasant strikes right yeah. um but their opponent like his opponent is uh overwhelmed a little bit overwhelmed and then uh they close uh, they close into grapple and neither one of them knows what they're doing and it's clear to everybody right um but then you just hear this like pop or you know like a crunch right 
and uh, and they both back off. You know, the judges are like, all right, enough of that. Right, <laughs> enough of this embarrassing flailing. Get yeah, back yeah, to yeah. your uh, get back to your corners. Um, and the, the you've got the the person in the red corner. Um, their their arm is just suddenly like a little bit. It looks a little bit weird. You know, it's slightly longer than it should be. Um, uh, yeah, and uh, I'm looking over, and uh, they, they fair play to them. They went to continue the fight. I don't think they realized. Like how screwed up their shoulder was, uh, but yeah, I think um, I, I think anyway, it transpires that it got um, dislocated, um, and uh, and everyone was giving me dirty looks because I like raised my glass and went five points blue, and uh, <laughs> which I know I like you know I like <laughs> yeah shouldn't have, but um, I think definitely if you don't know what you're doing in grappling, don't like don't grapple. You know, yeah, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. just stick to simple stuff. And I don't, to a certain degree, I think like strikes should be allowed. Like you know, just punches should be allowed. Um, not heavy ones, but whenever I'm fighting Mike, he'll like you know he will absolutely batter me um, with like punches and stuff when we're coming in. And Melissa does it as well, and she's wearing yeah, 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 yeah. you know, so she's wearing the spare heavies, and she'll probably lamp me one. Yeah, as long as both people are happy with it, it should absolutely be part of it, definitely. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think it's I, I think it's something that we like should bring into it. I was watching uh, an A uh, an AMA, um, one of uh, Fran's AMAs with uh, Jessica Finley, because um, I know that she does like a lot of grappling stuff, and she's like, grappling shouldn't be allowed. Um, but I think that maybe you could have like an open you know like an open tournament but then maybe different tiers so you know an open tournament but like with a different rule set you've got a like a you know a tier two tournament and maybe that allows grappling um, or maybe something separate altogether um, yeah, and yeah. so it's not just uh saber but it's also like you you've got different weapons um so you've got mma gloves or boxing gloves it would have to be mma gloves wouldn't it i guess because uh uh, there's no way you can really hold a sword with boxing gloves. Yeah, they'd have to be the MMA or the, um, you know, what are the uh, the famous one Bruce Lee gloves he uses in that one movie, the, the five finger, big big sort of five finger gloves that he has? Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, you could use those possibly. If they fit in the foam saber guard, they might do. Mm. They could yeah. work. But I think you could do that with pretty much all the uh, foam sword uh, you know, the foam swords that they make and then have like a, a different tier which allows, um, you know, grappling or ringing or, you know, abrazare, whatever you want to call it, uh, in that tournament. But it's like specifically, um, as you say, if a cut comes in, you have to kind of recognize that you're, you're finished. Um, but if you do close the grapple, then it becomes almost a sort of um, a, like a ringing, um tournament you know yeah 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 i the only problem is with the tournament like that is you will get people that just take the mick with it and just ignore strikes and it's going to be hard to to manage it if there are people will rush through some of the strikes and, and basically brush them off so it's going to be hard to regulate it whereas i think if you just had people who show some common sense doing it in a in a basically not in a tournament but in a free fight i think you have a better result as, as a rule Mm. I think it will get abused 
like whenever I've seen tournaments that basically encourage a lot of grappling or have continuous fighting, basically they don't break on hits, is suddenly the sword impacts become far less significant, and certainly the opening strikes, you know. So <coughs> yeah, I think it, it, there is a risk of that from a tournament perspective. Yeah, no, I suppose you're right. Um, yeah, experimenting. People ask about the continuous fighting all the time. It's like, why do you stop on every point? And it's because obviously in a lot of fights historically, you know, it's hard to say how many, what percentage, but a lot of fights would go on after, you know, one or two, three hits and still be fighting. And how do you simulate it? Well, it's tough because if you just say we're going to fight to five continuous points, well, oh, okay, I'll just ignore this hit to my hand that would have taken my hand off, or I'll ignore this hit to my head, which probably would have knocked me unconscious. And um, I have seen that as a problem in some tournaments in the past that do encourage, as I said, encourage either continuous action or or closing that, that ignores some hits on the way in. So it is a problem. Yeah, yeah. I've um, I've had it with uh, a couple of students where they like to rush in, um, and so you know because they they start off they're using synthetic swords, um, and so I'll I'll tell them. You know, I'm not going to hurt them or anything, and they know I'm not going to hurt them. Like I assure them um, of that beforehand, but I make them take their mask off, uh, and I'll take a steel sword and I'll put it like about an inch from their face and go, "Okay, run at me as fast as you can." And they're usually like, um, "No," and I'm like, "Yeah, why?" And, uh, you know. Um, oh, that's so, one of the best. I found actually one of the best things for that is to get people at a distance and let them hold sharps in front of each other. Like not at a level they could ever make contact, but just have them stand in front of each other in guard positions with sharp swords and just know how it feels because it's it's seriously uncomfortable to be looking down the point of a razor sharp sword, and yeah. uh, it does make people think twice. They do not want to come anywhere near it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, it's a good lesson. It's uh, and the thing is, like you and I have both done reenactment. Um, I've seen what happens, you know, when people do take a steel to the face, like a blunt steel sword. Yeah. Um, I've taken, like, I've eaten a few swords uh, myself. Um, I'm wildly unpopular with some reenactment groups uh, <laughs> that I know. So, like, I'm, I'm a little bit kind of suspicious that some of them weren't accidental. But, uh, yeah, <laughs> um, it's not cool. It's, it's really unpleasant. Um, and I think that gives you, it, it ultimately gives you way more respect for what that can do to you um so yeah because i was like i was um fencing with uh a friend of mine and um his sword as i was running you know i was running to close um because he pressured my sword aside and his sword just kind of dropped down onto my shoulder and it was edge on and but i was already in motion you know so i'm coming at him kind of thing i was already in motion and uh um Anyway, he was like, oh, that was yours. And I was like, no, actually, you know, yours sort of dropped down onto my shoulder, um, edge on. And he was like, yeah, but, you know, it, it wouldn't have done a great deal. And I'm like, buddy, you know, if, uh, you know, if you run onto the sharp edge of a sword, you, get, you know, it will do something. Um, yeah. It might not stop you. It might not stop the fight then and there. Um, but, uh, yeah, I'd absolutely know about it. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, yeah. At the end of this lockdown, um, which is on the 9th, I think it's on the 9th. I've got it on the thing. Yeah, it is. Um, hopefully, uh, Wales is going to start opening up a bit more and you'll be able to head back to Bristol. Um, I can still go to Bristol at the moment. Uh, oh, sweet. 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. So we can we can travel for work, um, and as as paid instructors for a nominal fee that it is, um, we can Mike and I can still travel to Bristol to to teach. So uh, because you know it's work, so we got to keep the club operational. Mm, mm. Uh, so we, we we can travel, and we have to travel because if we don't, the club dies. Because yeah. the the Bristol Leisure Centre is still open, the booking's still there, the, the bills have still got to be paid. So it has to operate and therefore we have to travel for it. So um, for that, yes, we were still going at it. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, the Newport Club has been shut since March. That's a killer. That's an absolute killer. I was going to say, because, sorry, go on. Yeah, well, when we get to the ninth, maybe some things will lift, but they're talking about new national restrictions. So I don't think it's going to change significantly. Uh, yeah, no, I know it's... Um, you know they're talking about the digital christmas and i'm like i've i've followed every regulation of a deer to everything but i'm not letting you cancel christmas like <laughs> i'll flip a table i'm not uh <laughs> i can't i can't do digital christmas it's not in me i love christmas i'm like big into christmas i i know people are like ah oh, it's just another day of the year not for me um i love it i get together with my family it's a big deal um, oh yeah, I, I love it. It's a big celebration. I mean, it's just a reason to get together, friends, family, eat food, have some fires and beer, and yeah, it's it's good. So yeah. we need something. I mean, unfortunately, so many of uh, my friends live in England, so yeah. you know, unless the border restrictions change significantly, I'm not going to be seeing them, which is uh, which is which is a pain in the ass. I mean, we'd normally have a. Uh, our sparring event um, in December. We always have one in early December and have our Christmas AHF do. And obviously that's not going to happen, not even, no chance in hell, which is a bit tragic. Yeah, because again, that's like, those are some of my favorite HEMA events. And and yeah, it's it's crushing me at the moment, like the, the whole heat, you know, being locked up thing. Because Melissa and I are really, um, you know, we do things quite spontaneously. So like last year, January, I think it was. Um, I just turned to Melissa and I was like, there's this armory in Dresden. I really want to see it. And she's mm -hmm. like, cool, let's go. And we just went um, and uh, hung out in Dresden for a little bit and then traveled, uh, you know, went to Berlin, did the whole thing. But um, yeah, we just can't do anything like that. You know, we, we haven't been anywhere this year. So yeah, it's a massive bummer. Just as the lockdown kicked in, actually, Alex was coming over. Um, he was due to come over the weekend that we locked down. Yeah. And um, we had big plans. We go into Portsmouth to the seal the ships there, Victory and Warrior and that lot. Let's go back up to Leeds Armoury, Lowmore Castles, uh, and obviously the fencing event would have been the week um, after during that time as well. So yeah, we had plans for that that was just you know shot out of the water. Mm. Yeah. yeah, it is infuriating. Yeah, because um, I keep lying to myself as well. I'm like, oh, I'll do this. I'll finish this. You know, because like I started writing. Um, I was like, I'll, I'll write, you know, I'll write a fencing book, you know, I'll write a thing. And then, you know, I don't, I just end up getting, you know, uh, being on like ghost recon with all my friends going, yeah, okay. He's in the, you know, he's in the building. You know? <laughs> I just, all of that nonsense. So, you know, never. Gonna I happen. think in that regard, that's the way, uh, the reason YouTube has such an advantage over the written formats when it comes to martial arts is that, I mean, I've done this loads of times. I've started writing a book on various, you know, HEMA subjects and it just you know it drags on I re-edit I change it I don't publish it blah, blah 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 but with YouTube you don't have to worry about that you can just put up a video this week and then if you 
five years down the line, you change your interpretation, you you make another video. So there's yeah. oh, there's always content for people to work from. And you could say, oh yeah, but I want to produce the perfect book. But the hilarious thing is if you produce your perfect book this year, I guarantee you in five to 10 years time, you'll look back and think that was shit. I, gar <laughs> I guarantee it because you constantly and you change, you evolve and you improve what you're doing. Whereas yeah. YouTube, you go, oh, well, I'll make another video and, you know, I can unpublish the old one if I want to or leave it there for, you know, posterity. Yeah. Uh, in that regard, these bite-sized YouTube things, I think, are way, way better. So um, I, I, for the most part, I've given up on producing, you know, interpretive books. Not that I think that other people shouldn't, but personally, I think, uh, for me, YouTube is a better format for most of those things. Yeah, that's fair enough. Um... It usually takes me a long time to put anything up on YouTube, to be honest, because like you're a pro, you put everything, you know, you put something up like, you know, you, you post very frequently. Um, same with like Matt Easton. I have no continuity. I'll put something up when I, you know, when I've got, when I feel like it, I'm going to do like a review of the Faceless Fencer messes with um, Ben. Um, but I'm banking on him. Uh, doing most of the legwork on that one and I know he'll be listening to this podcast so this is the way of me letting him know that he's going to be doing the legwork. <laughs> I mean the trick for me has always been uh, to make it as easy as possible so like years ago I was making instructional videos let's say 2009 I think I was making some rapier instructional videos because my my main subject back then was rapier I was teaching from Cabo Ferrell and I started making some videos going through the plates in his manual and there are like 43 plates and each plate has sort of a play that works through as basically this person does this and he responds and counter and that kind of thing and I did two plates out of it but because it required kind of a day's editing I never made more than two whereas if you make it easy for yourself and there's basically a small basically no editing is the, is the key it, uh, which means you need to obviously you know keep the camera rolling and keep it precise and, and of high quality not screw up as as best as possible and just do a quick snap, you know, quick uh, short edit if you have to. But yeah, if you have to start like linking audio and video together and, you know, chopping from different angles and stuff like that, it just bogs down. And that's yeah. my experience is that in theory, to make the best instructional video, you would shoot multiple angles and, you know, do all kinds of fancy editing and work with it. And in reality, if you want to keep them regular, you just got to make it easy. Yeah. Yeah, if you're a you know if you're a one person operation that makes sense um, yeah so yeah. Um, for, for me it's like you know audio has to be direct into the into the phone as well i'm usually shooting which means i go wireless because years ago i was shooting separate audio um and now it's all it has to be done wirelessly but um straight to the to the to the phone and um and my apple mac which i use for editing uh, it just goes straight to it you know airdrop it straight to the computer upload within minutes so if you keep it easy, you'll get more content. That's my experience. Yeah, that's cool. Um, I should do that. Um, I think part of it is just being a bit of a perfectionist. So even if I kind of stutter a little bit, I'm like, no, nope, I've got to do it again. Um, so yeah, um, like people think I'm really easy going. I'm not. <laughs> like when it comes to things like that, I'm just like, no. Nah. Um, so yeah. Uh, I've, I've just got to kind of like break away from that. And Melissa keeps telling me the same thing. She's like, look, just, just post it. And I'm like, nah, nah, I can't. I can't. That's exactly what I'm saying, the difference between the written format. Like I'm more perfectionist for the written format. Like I've been writing a book on uh, British infantry stores in the Napoleonic period. And it's supposed, it's going to be the basically the most, well, it's going to be the largest book on the subject, the most 
in-depth book in this, on this subject that's ever released, and it'll be a free ebook. Uh, but I've been doing it for two and a half years, and it's three quarters of the way done, but I still have to keep going back at it. Whereas, yeah. you know, you can take a bite-sized piece of information and make a YouTube video and get it out there easily, so. Yeah, yeah, and that, that, is, really, uh, that is really cool, especially when you know that for most people, I find most people in HEMA, um, well, probably more people will have seen the YouTube video than they will um, have read the book because they find the YouTube stuff more accessible, which is fine. You know, for a lot of people, they're visual or audio, you know, um, audible learners. Uh, also, you've, got a broader, you've often got a broader audience, not just because it's accessible, because it's YouTube, but say, let's say you've got a HEMA book, you've got to even know what HEMA is and be interested in HEMA to even be interested in the book. Uh, like my recent series I've done on YouTube is kind of what is a saber, what is a broadsword, and they're just basically what is that, that weapon. That isn't just aimed at HEMA people, that's uh, as a result so much broader. It's like, oh, you want to know about swords, you don't even have to know what HEMA is, here's a video, and uh, and you get a broader audience that way. And, and you can fish for new HEMA people and you know by doing that, because you can reel them in. Uh, but yeah, as far as a book goes, it's, it's already specialist, they have to know about it, they have to want it to begin with. Yeah, yeah. <clears throat> No, that's a really good point. I guess it's part of it for me is an ego thing. It's for the pleasure of knowing that I've written a fencing book, you know, <laughs> and that's it. Like I'll write it. No one will ever see it. I'll just have it. And I'll go, yeah, you know, somebody will find that in like 300 years and just go, oh, this guy probably knew what he was on about. Maybe. <laughs> so, oh, you'll be yeah. the next Joe Silver. Yeah. <laughs> and hated universally. Um, so. <laughs> I mean, his, his manual actually was his manual on swordsmanship wasn't published in his day. Oh yeah. Uh, no, no, it was found in the late nineteenth century. You know, so three hundred almost years later, and it was unpublished. And basically, a British army captain found it and just went, "Oh, this looks interesting," and published it then. Oh, that's cool. I didn't know yeah, that. Because George Silver wrote two books. His first one is just an angry rant about stuff that was published in the late sixteenth century, and his manual on swordsmanship wasn't published. Until yeah, it was found by that British Army captain. Just went, oh, I'll publish it now. So yeah, you yeah. could, you know, your unpublished work could be like that, three hundred years later, and you know. Yeah, yeah, that'd be all right. Yeah, and then the humorists of the future, like, <laughs> because uh, anytime I sort of say, like, it, I, I think like if I went into a pub full full of humorists and just went, yeah, George Silver, he's the best, eh? Um, I, th I think like a load of heads would just snap up, like, what? You know? <laughs> so, yeah. Um, this has been awesome, buddy. Um, where can people find you online? Uh, it depends what you want to see, but uh, on YouTube, on the Academy of Historical Fencing uh, channel, you can find there. Uh, on Facebook, there's the um, Academy of Historical Fencing public page. I'm on Instagram, uh, that's mainly just kind of sword porn and, uh, and similar, <laughs> uh, which is uh, Nick underscore T underscore HF. And uh, I suppose that's it. And also, on, I do run a couple of Facebook groups, like the Spadruna group, which is for, um, as it sounds, for Spadruna enthusiasts. I admin the Cutlass and uh, Naval sort of stuff on Facebook as well. Yeah, you can find me in a few different places. And I'm always lurking in various Sabre groups, you know, military and classical Sabre and stuff like that. And there's yeah. a good one as well called Nima, which is Napoleonic era martial arts. Oh, that's cool. Uh, I, I don't have me in that one, but I'm on there and it's a, it's a, good, uh, it's a good group. So it's, so yeah, Napoleonic era martial arts or Nima. So that's a good one as well, which is nice and specific. What about um, your T-shirts? Yeah, on uh, Redbubble, so this is the uh, Swordfight UK shop on Redbubble, so you can get the 
various designs I've been doing, like the row of shirts and stuff like that. And I've got a Maya range that has been added now. So, um, yeah, there's plenty of stuff on there. I'm gonna and, take uh, and of course, my books, you can find me on Amazon as uh, Nick S. Thomas and uh, my latest series, Craven's War. When did you say uh, the second one's dropping tomorrow, right? Uh, Saturday. Cool. Okay. Um, no, that's awesome. Uh, thanks very much, buddy. No problem. Good to talk to you. If you want to find out more about historical European martial arts, visit www.academyofsteel.com or look for us on YouTube or Instagram or Facebook or you can shoot us over a question at info at academyofsteel.com.